introducing to you Reverend Mark Kuyper. Uh, Mark was in business for 10 years before he was in ministry. He was in sales. And then he felt the call of the Lord to go to seminary and to pursue ordination in the PCA. And Mark has planted a church. He has been where we are. He planted a church in L.A. many years ago. He was a senior pastor of a church in Tupelo, Mississippi. And then he was the senior pastor of Kirk of the Hills in St. Louis, Missouri. Many of you know, and those of you who are uh, new this week, we want you to know that we want to be a church about church planting that has a vision for planting other churches. And by God's grace, 18 months ago, we had the privilege of beginning that journey up at Grand Lake at Grove with a core group or a uh, community group of Trinities at Grove that has since blossomed into a beautiful young church plant. And Mark, together with his wife, Tammy, are praying about and soon to be, Lord willing, the church planting family that is going to go and launch that new church. So it's um, been a humbling weekend for me to meet Mark and Tammy, to learn from him. And I'm thrilled that he's able to come and bring us God's word this weekend. So Mark, come on up. Job chapter 19. I want to give you just a little bit of context before you uh, open up your Bibles to Job 19. Uh, people ask all the time, pastors, how were people saved in the Old Testament? How did people, did people know Jesus? They didn't even know his name. How, how, how were people saved in the Old Testament? And what we have sung about this morning is what people believed in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament fleshed out in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament, they looked forward to what we look back to. They looked forward to a Redeemer coming. And we had pictures in the Old Testament of this. But I think this book of Job, uh, for, for anybody who calls on the name of the Lord, is this foundational look at life on earth in light of what's going on in heaven. I titled this sermon, Situational Awareness. And one of the great joys of a pastor is, is having uh, life from the cradle to the grave, to be involved in, in the, the birth of a child and the funeral of an elderly person. And it often happens, both of those often happen in one month. In fact, often I've found in, in being a pastor, those things happen in the same week. Sometimes you'll get this call and they're in the hospital and uh, you get to see. I had this joke at the Kirk of the Hills uh, that I wanted to be the first person every baby saw. And actually, people believed it. You know, it was this ongoing joke to make those mothers a little bit wary. You know, he, did he really say that? But it was something wonderful about being there in that moment, presenting the child at the church. But something also wonderful and glorifying about saying goodbye to a beloved friend and brother. In Job, we get a picture of how this belief in a Redeemer affects every situation in Job's life. One particular wedding at the rehearsal dinner, it was an older groom, and uh, so some of the toasts were actually made by his nephews. And one of the best toasts was this nephew that came up and said, I, I want to thank Uncle Jason for all that he taught me. 
And he listed off all of these things. Then he paused for a minute and he said, especially the concept of situational awareness. Now, when he said that, everyone who knew Jason started laughing. Because Jason was one of those guys that didn't have a real good inner dialogue. He would say things, and then as soon as they came out, you would see on his face that he was longing to get those words back. And uh, he couldn't. But an adorable man (laughs) with a problem of understanding what's appropriate in a situation Job's situation, many of you probably know this, so I'm just going to give you just a few verses to describe it. Job's situation, in in chapter 2 of Job, we, we read about him being infected with boils from head to toe. It starts with this amazing picture in the throne room of God, where God has all the angels before him, and then Satan also comes before him, and God says, have you seen my servant Job? There's nobody like him on planet earth. And Satan accuses God. He says, well, of course Job serves you. He says, does Job serve you for nothing? And he accuses Job of serving God for what God gives him. Not serving God because of who God is or because God is worthy of worship and service. But no, you worship God, he says, because you put a hedge around him. If you touch any of his stuff, he will curse you. And so God says, all right, go ahead. And he takes away his children. He takes away his wealth. In fact, he takes away just about everything that Job could look at in joy and satisfaction. But he leaves his wife. And he leaves his wife because here's what his wife says to him. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he, Job, said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. It's important you understand that as we read chapter 19, that the text tells us that Job didn't sin with his lips. The text never says that Job was righteous in all that he did and all that he thought. But as he goes through this suffering, his friends come alongside, and they offer all sorts of reasons why Job would suffer. And their reasons really are, it's the Old Testament health and wealth gospel. Job, please, if you just, if you just admit to what you've done, then God will give you everything else back. Just, just admit, I know you did this. And Job would say, no, I didn't do that. His friends come to visit him in verse 11, and I want to give you just a picture of what he looked like. Verse 11 of chapter 2, it says, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, Zophar, the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. They raised their voices and they wept and they tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven and they sat with him on the ground seven days, seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. Do you get that? They see him from afar, and they're like, is that him? That that can't be him. He is so grossly disfigured. It can't be the Job that we knew. And they approach him. They cannot say a thing. And maybe, maybe you've seen someone like that. Maybe you yourself have been that person. I, I truly have visited people in the hospital, and I've walked past their door, and I've put my head to look in, and I've said, oh, excuse me. 
There was a woman that was beaten beyond recognition that I worked with in sales. I went to see her, and I walked past her room. And I heard her say, Mark. And I'm like, oh, hi. Trying my best to hide the fact that I couldn't recognize her. That's exactly what happened to Job. And it's vitally important that you understand that this happened to Job, not because of sin he had committed. Not because he didn't know something. Not because he hadn't given enough. Not because he'd put his life in his children and they were his gods. Not because he loved money. Job suffered to glorify God. His friends came. They couldn't recognize him. His wife said, Job, curse God and die. Get it over with, honey. And Job said, shall I receive Only good from God. I want us to turn to chapter 19. As they have made all of their accusations against Job, each one of his friends speaking and and encouraging him to repent. In chapter 19, in verse 23, we read, and if you're able, would you stand for the reading of the Word of God? Job says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. You may be seated. My grandfather on my mother's side was a stretcher bearer in World War I. And by the time I got to know him, he had suffered quite a bit, suffered quite a bit mentally, physically. Uh, He used to have a beautiful voice, just a, a wonderful voice. But as a child, all I remember was when he would come and visit us in the United States. They lived in Australia. When he would come and visit us, all I would remember about my grandfather was that he sang two songs over and over again. And uh, one, uh, one was Fanny Crosby's, Though Your Sins Be As Scarlet, They Shall Be As White As Snow, taken from Isaiah. But the other one was this passage. In the morning, I'd hear him as he was drinking his coffee. He would be singing, I know that my Redeemer lives. And it's an interesting thing. If you think about what Job said, I wish my words were written in stone. I think you'd be hard-pressed to go to any, any cemetery and not find these words written in stone. I know that my Redeemer lives. The sermon in one sentence for you this morning is that if you know your Redeemer lives, it forever changes your situational awareness. You see, often our belief is a result of the situation we're in. We, we look at our surroundings, we look at what's happened, and, and it, it kind of formulates a belief. Now, we find this all the time in those who want to deny God. I would say almost every atheist I've ever met was a deist who had terrible hurt and pain in their life. And the way they'd settled that hurt and pain was for them to say, there must not be a God because if there was a God, why on earth would I have lost my mother when I was seven or eight? 
if there was a God? Why would my father, who was just a wonderfully kind man, why would he be taken when I was 16? If there was a God, why would my child have been born with such a terrible, debilitating disease? And we find that, that the situation far too often dictates what we believe. Not just how we behave, but what we believe. And in these few verses, Job is able to say, in, in light of my, uh, my, the, the real uh, right around the corner, kind of the immediate future, I know that my Redeemer lives. In the present, I'm able to deal with what I'm suffering because I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the future, I know that my Redeemer lives. His situation didn't control what he believed. In fact, it was the opposite. I want to look, just look at those three time zones. For him, the near future. What does he say in the near future? I mean, he, he says, My skin, in verse 26, has been destroyed in my flesh. I shall see God. He says, It looks to me, friends, that I'm not going to be in this world very long. That, that, that it, it, it appears, and it, and it would be right for us to assume that I'm not going to be around very long. And yet, I can face this. And it's beautiful the way he faces it. He doesn't face it by trying to accuse God. He doesn't face it by saying, if, if I die tomorrow, I know that I have done good. And I know that God will see all the good that I have done. And, and he, he'll know that, and, and that is going to be enough. No, he says, in this present moment, as I look towards my death, I know my Redeemer lives. And in that statement, he is saying, Though you have accused me of evil, and, and though the things that you have come up with I have not committed, I still need a Redeemer. Even though of all the human beings that were on the planet, God chose this one to point out and say, there's no one like him on planet Earth, he still needed a Redeemer. And at the end of the book, Job does repent. He repents of what he thought concerning God, but he doesn't repent of the accusations that his friends said he committed. It allows him to face a certain death with a resolve. He can look at the near future without hopelessness because of what he knows is true right now, but also in the present, right now, right at this moment. When um, I have four kids, and when the sky is falling down, which would happen at least once a week, I would often look at them and I would quote, say, do you think Jesus is still on the throne? And I'm like, yes, Dad, I know Jesus is still on the throne. But the point I was trying to get across is that no matter what's going on right now, right at this moment, and it, and it just seems so bad, and it seems that God has abandoned you, son, daughter, wife, myself, is King Jesus still on that throne? Is he aware? I mean, what's wonderful about this book is, is it, it, it shows this sovereign God in the midst of suffering. 
that he has withheld certain pain and suffering, that he holds Job's very life in his hand. And though it would appear, and if Job was in our church and we were to visit him, we would not blame him at all if he said, I'm just doubting that God loves me. I'm just doubting that he cares. It just doesn't seem fair. I've done all of this. This doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. We wouldn't blame him. We wouldn't say, well, Job, you know you've not been ever saved by your own righteousness, right? You you know that, Job. We wouldn't say that. It would be a harsh thing to say, but Job really did know that. In the present situation, he says, I know my Redeemer lives. Now, I'm going to rush through this, but there are three important aspects of a Redeemer. But it's important that we understand this and how it relates to saving faith. The first thing that a Redeemer is to do is to pay the price. Job Job says, "I I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that the price of all that I have committed, even if everything you three friends say is true, even if everything you say is true, and even if it's worse than this, I have a Redeemer. He will pay the price for me. It's important that our Redeemer is able to do that. Secondly, it's important that he has the power to redeem. He will redeem. He will take back by force what is his. We see Abraham as a type of Christ do this when he goes and rescues Lot and his people. We see Boaz doing this in Ruth's case where he has the ability and he actually does it. He actually buys back. There is this redemption that goes on. Thirdly, the Redeemer will avenge and defeat the enemy. Jesus rose from the dead and proclaimed victory over death. He says, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Job knew that his Redeemer would defeat his enemy. There's three important saving personal aspects of the Redeemer. And the first is that you know him. He says, this is what I know. My brother Paul, so I grew up as a little kuiper. He's eight inches taller and he's about this much wider. My brother Paul and I would have epistemological arguments all the time. We didn't know the word epistemology, but we had the arguments regardless. And it would always be over things he said he knew. I don't you know if you remember this, but in the 80s it was kind of popular when NBA teams would lose. The, one of their stars would say, I'm guaranteeing a victory next week. I mean, have you heard that? To drive you nuts? I'm guaranteeing a victory. Like, you don't even know if you'll be here. You don't know if you get a wreck on the way to the arena. How can you guarantee? Those are the kind of arguments I used to have with my brother. Mark, I know this is going to happen. Well, you don't know. You think. And there's a, there's a high probability, Paul, that you're right. No, I know. I'm like, you can't know. But Job says, this I know. Of course you understand in in scriptures what it talks about knowledge. It is more than just a set of, of facts. It is a personal, physical resting in this is something relationally deep that I know and I rest on. And so when you're in a situation and something comes out, that's the time where you look at your faith and the object of your faith. It's not I have faith until X happens. It's I never had faith and I got tested and I found out what it really was. There's a beautiful sermon that C.S. Lewis preached in 1939 uh, in Oxford called Learning in Wartime. And he was preaching this message to college students. 
And he was answering the question, should we even go to college when we're not sure what's going to happen in Europe? When we're not sure if even some of these students are going to be